Hey, uh, can we give another round of applause for the kids? That was really great. That was a great job. So as the kids told us, as we've been looking at throughout this series, as we've been preparing for the Christmas season, we've been looking at the names of the coming Messiah. We've been looking at that passage in Isaiah 9-6. I'm going to read it again. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what we've seen as we've been talking through this series is that Isaiah's prophecy is not only a list of titles, but these names imply character traits of who Jesus will be. And the names themselves tell a story about who this king is going to be. When I think back on Christmas as a kid, and think about the names of people that uh, were part of my Christmas experience, sometimes I forget the people outside of my immediate family that were there. But one name that always sticks out uh, is my grandma Rissy because of the stories that are attached to her being around Christmas time. So, for example, uh, every Christmas, my grandma Rissy would make this rum cake, which, if you don't know, is cake with rum in it. It's pretty simple. Uh, but the exciting part about the rum cake was that you would light it on fire and it would just, you know, burst the flame. And it was really exciting. Uh, one year, she had decided to be drinking the rum while making the rum cake, uh, and uh, as she was pouring it on, it kind of, you know, just kind of sloshed off the table, uh, and so when she lit it, it not only lit the cake, which was very exciting, but then trailed down the table and onto the curtains. Uh, it was a very exciting Christmas. Um, and that story probably happened once, but then we told that story every time she made the rug cake afterward. Uh, and there's something about uh, stories that help us visualize people differently, um, and those names are connected to those stories. And so when we think about the name of Jesus, each one points to a story of how Jesus is the Savior. and He's going to exchange these broken parts of the world for something much better. And so today we're going to be focusing on the name Everlasting Father. Before we get too far into that, though, uh, let me pray for our time together. Dear Jesus, we thank you for the gift of you coming into our lives and replacing the broken things with life. Thank you for uh, all our friends that are here today, that this would be a meaningful time, that it's your words that would stand out, that those would be the things that we would remember and hold on to, um, that we would fall deeper in love with who you are and what you've done through us, um, through your sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Let's break down this title of Everlasting Father. First of all, let's start with Everlasting. So I think we kind of get the idea, same thing with rum cake, it's kind of self-explanatory. Everlasting means lasting forever, and it applies this eternal concept of time. But if we look a little deeper, the Hebrew word for everlasting, olam, means an unknown amount of time. And I think that changes my perspective a little bit about when I think about Jesus and the idea of everlasting. That it's not just forever from a certain point, but there's no beginning either. Uh, in Psalm 90, verse 1 through 2, the psalmist writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God, right? It's this idea of not just reigning forever, but always has been reigning as well from the very beginning. And so this idea of Jesus being everlasting also points to this idea that God thinks generationally, beyond time, beyond our 
our small lives beyond what our children are going to be doing, but really to our great-great-grandchildren as well. An example of this that we see is in Genesis, right in the beginning, in Genesis 21. There's this one line, and I, I love this line because it's so much deeper than just a simple statement. Uh, it says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but to people in the Near East, they look understand Scripture through picture. And this idea that there's something deeper behind this when we see and understand what the metaphor is. So first of all, the idea that Beersheba is in the middle of the desert. There, there's nothing there. It's just barren wasteland. Okay? But it says, Abraham goes to this place, and it says he plants a tamarisk tree. Now, if you were someone who lived in the desert, that would mean a lot to you, because there's nothing that grows in the desert, but this one tree does. Uh, and this tree is the lifeline of people who want to live in the desert. The leaves collect moisture during the night. You can see it's nice and full. It collects moisture. And then when it evaporates with the heat of the sun during the day, it creates a natural form of air conditioning underneath the tree. And so it would not only give shade, but it's probably 10 to 20 degrees cooler underneath that tree as well. It also uh, produces a juice that insects take in and convert, and it creates this sweet liquid that runs down the side of the tree that people can eat. Now, the thing about the tamarisk tree is that it takes 400 years to grow. So Abraham's saying, I'm going to go to this middle of nowhere place, and I'm going to plant this tree. And then it says he gives praise to the everlasting God. Right? He gets that picture of what God is about to do here. He's trusting that I'm not going to receive the benefits of this tree, but maybe my great-great-great-grandchildren will get to enjoy this tree later on. Later on. Right? It's trusting that the promise that God has given him, that God is everlasting, that he thinks generations down the line of what people will need. And so maybe we are a part of that as well. There's a line... Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Let me pull another scripture for that. So uh, Psalm 103, uh, we see this example of thinking beyond just one generation. Uh, in Psalm 103, verse 17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. This line also makes me think of, uh, in the musical Hamilton, there's a line that says, What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. And it's this picture that you start something and you may not see it, the end of it. So what is God's legacy then? It is his people. It's this generation after generation that are going to continue the work beyond just one generation. Right? We won't ever see the full extent of the seeds that we plant. Um, and that's part of God's design, part of his picture. He's beyond time. He is everlasting. And he plans things generations in advance. And so we may never see the progress of the time or the love that we give to people. And it may be through the impact of our children that we actually see fruit from the things we've done. Because you raised your children to follow God, they're on a different path than they would have been had you not been following that path. And so as we think about passing things on to the next generation, let's take a minute and talk about that. At Bedrock, we like to discuss. That's how we look, realize we learn things best. It's by processing it and talking with other people. Um, so let's take a moment. You can move around. You can turn your chairs into small circles. Um, let's think about things that we pass on from generation to generation. So our discussion question is, what are things or traditions that you have passed on from generation to generation in your family? So let's take a couple minutes to talk about that. So Christmas tradition is a really big deal in my family. Um, 
so my heritage is Polish, and so every Christmas we make this Polish uh, dessert called kolacze. Um, and uh, there's we actually brought some today. I hope you guys have enjoyed some of that. Um, but it takes like five hours to make. Uh, so, uh, but when I married Holly, uh, and actually before we were married, when we were still dating, it was important to my dad and my family that Holly learned how to make kolacze, uh, so that it would be passed on. Uh, and so that eventually then we could pass it on to our kids, which for now are Emily and Tamia. Uh, so uh, we are passing that tradition on and on as we go. Um, but the person who keeps this tradition going, if we really are honest, is my dad. He's the one that it's so important to that the tradition gets passed on from generation to generation. And he's the keeper of that tradition. And so we see the second part of this name expressed here. It's not just generation to generation, everlasting, but also that Father is part of this name for Jesus, that he is described as the everlasting Father. And so I, let's look into that. I, I know we've talked about this before, how often the name of Father has some negative connotations with it. It evokes different reactions from different people. Uh, and sometimes it can be hard to wrap our heads around Jesus excuse me, as this fatherly role, uh, when our relationships with our fathers are so often broken. And the truth is that we have this image of what a perfect father should be like, and so we often compare our earthly father to that picture. We're all longing for this thing for a reason, um, and it's because our heavenly father is the standard that we are holding our earthly fathers to. And helping to understand that has changed my perspective on that. Um, that when we, we need to look at God's example first and then think about our earthly father. And so often we flip it the other way around. We try to compare God to our earthly father when it should actually be flipped in our heads. Um, as one pastor noted, God is the original, not the replica. Right? He is the picture we should be looking to first. It also may be confusing for some of us that Jesus is being called father when he's usually referred to as the son for most of scripture. So why does Isaiah refer to Jesus as the father in this context. And really it's a simple answer in some ways and a complex answer in others. Uh, but it's to show the oneness of God and Jesus. We get this picture in scripture um, that there is this united uh, trinity of forms of God together. In John 14, 8 to 11, Jesus is explaining this to his disciples. It says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And as confusing as understanding the Trinity is, while God the Father and Jesus the Son are separate entities, they're also the same entity as well. So Jesus is also the Father. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, there is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. There is this picture that they are the same person. And we see that the last part of that verse in verse 11 says, believe me on accounts of the works themselves. We see Jesus act fatherly throughout scripture. And one of the main ways he does that is how he interacts with children. So I want to point to a couple pieces of scripture that go through that. In Matthew 18, verses 5 to 6, it says, whoever receives, or Jesus is talking, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
Just as any parent would react about other people leading your kids down the wrong path, Jesus doesn't put up with that and doesn't tolerate people leading his children in the wrong direction. In Matthew 19, verses 13 to 14, Jesus again is talking and says, Then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little ones come to me, and do not hinder them, for, such, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And then the third example I'll give is a little more subtle, but I think it uh, is the one that hits home for me the most. In John chapter 21, it's uh, after the resurrection, Jesus is having breakfast with Peter, one of his disciples, and he asks Peter three times if he loves him. And Peter gets this chance to redeem himself after he had denied Jesus three times. Right? Even after his failure, Jesus reaffirms that he chose Peter and he is a part of this family. I think why I like it is it reminds me of a book that my parents used to read to me growing up called Guess How Much I Love You, uh, where this son, this rabbit, keeps asking his father how much he loves him, and Big Nut Hair Brown keeps giving him more and more examples. I love you this much. No, I love you this much. Um, and that's the picture we see here with Jesus and Peter, that there's this tender moment as this reminder of his love for Peter and passing on to the next generation what's going to happen. Peter is the inheritor of this mission to spread the gospel so that it will last forever. Jesus is thinking generationally, but he's also acting like a father here. And so these two names put together have different reactions for a lot of us. So let's spend some time talking about that. What aspect of this name for God, for Jesus, the everlasting father, do you connect with more? Which part is more difficult for you to come to terms with? So everlasting and father, which of those do you resonate more with, or which one do you find more difficult to connect with? Chat with your group again. Go. So as we've been talking about these names for Jesus, we've seen these titles reveal stories about who Jesus is, but they also reveal a truth about his nature, that this nature implies an exchange taking place. We see that the coming of Jesus is about the hope of trading in things that are broken in this world for something that is better. And so today I'm excited to talk about this idea of Jesus as the everlasting father and his exchange of the past for the future. That the gift of the Messiah coming to us is that who we were is not who we were made to be. And so to help us understand this exchange of past for future, we'll be looking at the first part of Paul's letter in the book of Ephesians. Um, so if you'd like to turn there, we will be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. So we are going to be working through the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And part of why I'm excited to talk about this is it is the greatest story ever told. It is just the gospel in its purest form. And so let's get right into this. We're going to talk about first what was our past. If we're thinking about exchanging the past for the future, we need to start there. So in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, it starts off saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, trespasses is a very churchy word uh, when it's used this way, but it really clicked for me once I started just like saying it over again. You know, when you start saying a word, it starts lose it, losing meaning just over and over again. Um, but when you start to really think about it, one who trespasses does what? Breaks a boundary, right? They, they move, go somewhere they're not supposed to go, right? Um, and so the writer here is using this word trespasses to talk about how humanity breaks God's boundaries. 
right? In Franklin County, when people trespass, what happens? <laughs> right? They get shot. <laughs> Trespassers will be shot. Um, right? And that's what this verse says, is that we were dead in our trespasses. We trespassed. And the consequence is death, right? If we're really taking this metaphor that Jesus is the guy on the porch with the shotgun and you have broken the boundary. No, we're not going to go that far. Uh, so we were dead in our trespasses is what this first verse says here. Okay? So we were dead in our trespasses. We had violated this boundary. And then the second part says, and through our sins, right? So the word sin is also a very churchy word, but if we really break that down, it is Latin and it means without uh, without. So this idea points to missing the mark of what you were going for. You're without. You missed it. Okay. Um, so you're falling short of the goal. So we missed the purpose of life, which was to be with God, because we violated that boundary. We went somewhere we weren't supposed to, and so we missed out. We were without him, not where we needed to be. Um, so John Stott, another theologian, also points out that trespasses speak of man as a rebel and sins speak of man as a failure. So before God, we are both rebels and failures. We missed the mark. We violated a boundary. Now, to clarify, there is a difference between capital S sins. I guess it's whoever asked. I did need that, that board. Capital S sins um, refer, or capital S sin refers to this eternal condition that we are in. Right? It is the disease then because we have this condition, we exhibit symptoms, which is the lowercase s, sins, plural. So you have capital S, sin, the condition, the problem, the brokenness of this world. And then the symptom of that is that we commit actions, which are sins, which is the lowercase s, the two. Okay. So, problem is the disease, the separation we've created through God, or from God through sin. And for a lot of us, this is a hard reality to accept. I think it's easy for us to agree that the world is broken. It's a lot harder to admit that we are the ones that broke it. Um, until we realized we are destined for death, that we have trespassed, that we, have, that we are now without God, and so the consequence is death, until we realize that we are the problem, we can't fix the problem. One commentator noted that uh, to a dead man, a coffin is very comfortable. Right? But if you knew you were sleeping in a coffin, it would not be comfortable. Right? It's once we realize that there is a problem that, that we can actually work on the solution. Right? We're comfortable in our sins until we realize we we are. So, into verse 2 now. Why was this our past? How did we get to this state? In verse 2, Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which you once walked. So I'm going to break this down real slow, uh, so just bear with me. But starting off, in which you once walked. Life is described as a walk in the Bible. There are so many examples in Scripture where uh, people talk about life as going through a walk or being on a path. In Deuteronomy 8.6, it says, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. In 1 Kings, when we were talking about Ahab and all the kings, it talked about that they walked in the ways of their fathers. Earlier in this very passage uh, in Isaiah 9.2, the one that we're uh, focusing on, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. In Proverbs 4.14, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the ways of evil. And Jesus said it as well. In Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate or path. For the path is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate or path is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, Jesus is using another metaphor that people would get. Another picture that the people that live as shepherds in this desert world would understand. 
The broad path, I think we have a picture. Broad path refers to a wadi, which is this dried out riverbed that uh, used to be a river, but it's, it's a desert, so it never rains, so there's no water there anymore. And it looks very pleasant as a path, right, to go walk through this area. It's pretty nice. The problem with the wadis is that when it does rain that one time of year, there's nothing to hold, the, there's nothing to sink into because it's so dry that it just flash floods, and this water comes out of nowhere and just goes right through that riverbed. Okay? So this path leads to death. It's also the same image that's used in that uh, story that Jesus gives of the, the uh, foolish man who built his house upon the sand. This is where the sand they're talking of. The desert in the Middle East is mostly rock and mountain, but there's the sandy part that's in these wadis. And so that's why it's foolish to build your house on this sand, because the water is just going to come through when the rains came in and the floods came up. That's the reference that they're making. Um, but the other part of this passage says the narrow path is the one that leads to life. That he's referring to these goat trails that are on the sides of the mountains. So you have the wadi that's down here, that's dangerous, that's broad and easy, and then you have the difficult path, which is all these mountain paths. I love watching those uh, National Geographic videos where you see these goats climbing what looks like nothing. <laughs> like they're, they're just barely holding on. And that's the picture that Jesus is saying here, that that is the path to life, right? You're not in this riverbed that's about to flood and lead to death and destruction, but you're on the narrow path that is difficult and hard but it is the way that's going to lead to life, right? So we see life described as a path. But we had chosen the broad path. We had chosen the path that leads to death. Verse 2 continues, right? So we followed this path following the course of this world. There is a, seems to be a flow to society and the way people want the world to function, right? There are values that seem to be givens for society, uh, and the expectations of how people should behave and what should they should value and care about. The Germans have a word for this. It's called Zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the age. So, for example, the Zeitgeist of the Roaring Twenties was wild abandon or rebellion, uh, rebellious behavior. The Zeitgeist of the Seventies was peace and love. And we have our own Zeitgeist or spirit of the age that we would describe our time period. But all of these are just courses of the world, people seeking after poor substitutes for what they're really looking for, the way the world was meant to be. And this is actually talked about in Scripture. In 1 John 2.17, it says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We were following the ways of the world down this path toward death because it was the expectation. This is what we're searching after, um, and this is what the world says it values. Right? The world's hopes will not last. Continuing in Ephesians 2. So, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are called sons of disobedience because of who our father is, earthly father, Adam. His legacy is symbolized by disobedience to God. When he went against what God's wishes were, when he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we inherit that disobedience. And there's a bit of wordplay here, too, which is just kind of more of a, 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 a history, English, Bible nerd point. But um, there's a play on the word here, too. Spirit comes from the Latin root spire, which means breathed. And so Paul explains that Satan, the prince of the power of the air, breathed into mankind and passed on his inheritance. And God breathed into Adam, and that's how he gives life to Adam. So there's a little bit of a parallel here. 
um, we could follow God and have been his sons, but we chose to follow the way of Satan, are now sons of disobedience. That is our inheritance. We have inherited this sin, which is often referred to as original sin in uh, theology circles. But as sons of disobedience, we inherit this disobedient nature. I think we know that, and that's not something people would argue with. You don't have to teach your children to misbehave. Right? It's just a natural part of life um, that we have inherited this spirit of disobedience and not wanting to do what other people tell us to do. All right, we continue in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. So, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here Paul says, by our nature, we are children of wrath. If we are inheritors of disobedience, we also inherit the consequence of that, which is God's wrath. But that is the result of the choice that we have made. And Romans 5 further explains, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. We followed that example that we inherited through disobedience and consequence of sin, and we all get the penalty, which is death. Because we have this condition of sin, we have the consequence of death, and it's not something we can do to fix this. So, here's our discussion question. Have you ever broken something that can't be fixed? What did you try to do to fix it, and what did you ultimately do about the problem? We can go as deep or as shallow as you want to go with this. So, uh, what is, have you ever broken something that couldn't be fixed? What did you do to fix it? And what did you ultimately do about the problem? As we're thinking about the brokenness of this world. Go. So, the world is broken, and we broke it. But there is an exchange. There is hope. Right? It's not just there is this past, but the promise that there will be a future. And so, the next two words in their passage in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 are some of the most powerful in scripture the two words that could sum up the entirety of the bible ephesians 2 4 but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with he with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved not only but god but then the next part, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God doesn't ignore the issue or say it's okay. The problem is acknowledged. It doesn't go away, even when God made us a lot. It's because of God's love for us that we are saved. We're still children of wrath. We still have that inheritance of disobedience. We cannot earn or win God's love. It is by grace that you have been saved. And we were dead because of this condition, because of Adam, but God made a way. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22, it says, For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It wasn't resuscitation, it was resurrection. We were dead. It wasn't a fake-out, the disease was incurable, so somebody had to die, right? There, there is no cure for the disease. Death is inevitable, but the choice is who's going to die for it. Jesus, the Messiah that we celebrate, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, came to earth as a man and took on the disease of capital S sin 
and died in our place. He took our punishment. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and so now we are alive too. That is the miracle of God's love through Jesus. Verse 6 says, And he raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a beautiful picture of a father picking up a child and placing them next to him. Just as he was raised, we are raised and seated with him, our everlasting father. Verse 7, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our inheritance has changed. We're no longer the inheritors of wrath. We get to be a part of the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance has changed. It is no longer an inheritance of death. It is imperishable. Verse 8 continues, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nothing we could do could save us. We were destined for death. We had broken the world. And it's only through God's gift that we are saved. So we have nothing that we can boast about that we can say we did it. We did not solve the problem of sin. And Romans 5.17 says, For if, because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. It was all Jesus. There is no other option. He reversed our situation. In verse 10 it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. The word workmanship here comes from the Greek word poema, which is where we get the word for poem. And so Paul is saying, we are God's great love poem. We have been made new in Christ Jesus, so we should look more like him. That is the re- reality, is that because of what he's done, our actions should reflect that. Right? This says, verse says we should start walking in a new path, not the one that leads to death. As we walk in this path, when we reach the end, we get to be with the Father forever, our everlasting Father. One of the kids read this verse today, and I want to read it again for you. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you think that verse has become cliche, I encourage you to read it again and read it slowly. Because it has the most radical ideas in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus took our past and our death and gave us a future of life. Part of why I love this passage too is that Ephesians 2 is the gospel in six words. You were, Ephesians 2.1, but God, Ephesians 2.4, and through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And so I want to spend some time today 
us just sharing our stories through that. So in your group, maybe just a couple people, um, go through and share your story using this, mo this uh, model here. You were, but God, through faith. And how are our stories similar, and how are they different? So let's spend some time encouraging each other through these stories. Go. So just as Jesus is everlasting, so is the gospel. There is no temporary gospel. This is the only solution. Your stories are the stories that are going to show people what life is about. Jesus has taken our past and exchanged it for a future. And so what are you going to do with that? There's a couple options here, some next steps moving forward. With any gift, you have a choice. Some of us have chosen to decline the gift. Some of us have accepted that gift, but have never actually unwrapped it to experience the full joy of what is inside. And some of us have accepted the gift and are so in love with the gift giver that we have to tell others about it so that they can enjoy the gift too. So I encourage you to take some next steps. If you've never made that decision about what to do with the gift of what Jesus has done, keep asking questions. Come to life groups. That's where we talk about what it means to follow Jesus and what this is all about. This isn't a choice to make lightly, and so we encourage you to go dig deeper, keep asking questions, come and talk with us about that. We'd love to discuss that with you. Uh, if you know in your head what Jesus has done, but you don't know it in your heart, I encourage you to remember that Jesus is everlasting, that our past is forgotten, so we have nothing to fear from this world. We can get out of the course of this world and follow after life, go on the narrow path. Our actions should reflect that we have a future and that we're not stuck in the past. So open the gift and experience joy and celebration. And if you've been following for Jesus, Jesus for a long time, be encouraged that this world isn't for us, that our future is with Jesus. So keep sharing the gift with as many people as you can. Tell your story. Tell it this season again and again so that other people can tell theirs eventually as well. Walk in this path with other believers. We have to do it together. We're going to wrap up today. Uh, Tom's going to come and lead us in a song, and then we'll see what's happening next. So if you guys will stand, please. <laughs>